Heavenly Father, as we begin this season of Lent, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be laser-focused on you and not distracted by the things of this world. Lord, that you would indeed come quickly and rescue us and help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today as a church, we begin in a journey together. In a sense, we've already begun on Ash Wednesday. And if you were here for Ash Wednesday, you heard that Lent is a time to um, mortify ourselves. It's a time where we particularly uh, eschew sin and we examine ourselves and we look at all the ways that we don't, um, we don't reflect Jesus. But then we ask Jesus to send the Holy Spirit to help us so that we might better reflect him. And so Lent is a time of focus, as I just prayed. It's the time the church sets apart, particularly for repentance and penitence. And Leah and I, my wife, were talking about it at home this week, and she said, you know, I really like Lent because non-Christians don't observe it. I thought to myself, well, yeah, that's true. You know, the culture, non-Christians observe Easter to some degree, and Christmas, certainly. Thanksgiving, of course, but not Lent. Well, it makes sense. For why would you seek to deny yourself? That seems anti-American. It seems anti-21st century American, certainly. To deny oneself and to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, well, there's no secular version of that. There's no secular version of that. And that's what we're called to do during Lent. To deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus with fasting, with almsgiving, with study. It's always made manifestly true each year just what a contrast there is here when you observe the people that observe or celebrate Fat Tuesday versus the people that observe Ash Wednesday. The secular world loves Fat Tuesday. Mardi Gras, pancakes, punchki. That's how you say it, by the way. As the grandson of a 100% Polish man, I can tell you that. Punchki. But they don't celebrate the next day, or observe, I should better say, the next day, the Ash Wednesday, the fasting, the penitence, the self-denial, the imposition of ashes upon one's forehead. The true Christ follower sees the foolishness of this to celebrate Fat Tuesday and not Ash Wednesday, is foolish. It's investing in fleeting, the fleeting today rather than the, self, the eternal. The fleeting today rather than the eternal. Even if he doesn't, <clears throat> even if the person doesn't hear it on Ash Wednesday, of course, 
you'll remember Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's Jesus speaking, of course, in Matthew's Gospel. So it's easy to lay up treasures, pleasures, comforts, and securities here upon this earth. It's always in front of us, the needs, the comforts. And yet, here and now, while more easy to grasp, is not the more important. The devil has tried to deceive us into thinking it's the more important since Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of time, where Scripture has given us multiple examples of how the devil's lie is false. Remember the story of Esau and Jacob in Genesis chapter 25, verse 29. Does that ring true to you? Esau, ruled by his hunger, does what? He comes in from the field and he trades his birthright to his older to his younger brother, rather, Jacob, for what? A bowl of stew. What's he doing in that? He's trading the immediate for the long term. He's satiating his hunger here and now and losing the long term. The devil colludes, you see, with mankind's short-sighted foolishness. It's easy. He doesn't have to come up with new plans because the old one works again and again and again. Almost always when we sin, what are we doing? Think about it. All sin falls into this category. Trading eternal good and comfort, to use the old prayer book's language, eternal felicity for immediate pleasure and small ones at that. These are easy to see when we take a step back and look at our sins. They're particularly easy to see in desires of appetite. They're a little bit more tricky when we look at sins of the mind and the soul. We eat too much or we buy too much food because it gives us comfort. It gives us security. But what is it doing? It's actually robbing ourselves on reliance upon God. Think about that for a moment. You make a God out of the things that you find security in rather than turning to God. That's the sin. We plan, we scheme, we strategize for a good position in the corporate or political world. We indulge our appetites for power in addition to food and other things. We indulge our appetite to control, trading contentment for fear, trading our contentment in Jesus and robbing ourselves of the peace of knowing the kingdom that is unshakable for a false and fleeting pleasure. We test God's promises, trying to use them for our own agendas. We treat Him as some kind of cosmic genie whom we can demand healing from or prosperity from. We perceive as what we need right now, the things that God should give us. 
But in doing that, we harm ourselves because when God doesn't give us those things, our faith is shaken and we're disappointed. The root of all sin, friends, is pride. It's thinking yourself better than God and knowing more what's good for you than God. It's seeking security for yourself instead of seeking security in God and and abiding in that security. But pride works in all sorts of different ways. It seems much more obvious to us as Christians when we look back at the time before we were Christians or when we look at folks that aren't yet Christians. And that pride manifests itself as an obvious rebellion against God. People that have not submitted themselves to Jesus just purely rebel. They don't want anything to do with God's law. They don't want anything to do with God's will. And when they're confronted with it, they run away or they fight. That's how pride is shown with people before they're Christians or that are not Christians. But once a person becomes a Christian and is submitted to Jesus Christ, pride gets more sneaky, more covert, more hidden. It weasels its way into our appetites and into our insecurities. Just look at the temptation of Christ in today's Gospel readings. Open with me and look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What do we read? That the Holy Spirit drives our Lord Jesus into the wilderness after his baptism. And immediately after his baptism, he faces the devil. The first temptation of Jesus appears to be one of appetite, food for someone who's been fasting, in line with the direction of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Is the first temptation really about food? It presents that way, but it's not. There's something much more going on there. You see, there's more to this temptation that meets the eye. It's sneakier than that. Of course, Jesus would be tempted by his desire to eat. Verse 2 tells us that he's hungry, lest there be any ambiguity. But that's not the real temptation, because eating is not a sin. What is the sin? Lutheran commentator Lenski brings it out to us. It's all in the word if, in verse 3. If you are the Son of God, do what? You see, we immediately focus on the turn that stone into bread. But the true temptation here to sin is what? To prove to the devil that he's the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, Jesus, you will do this. Hmm. The devil's asking Jesus to prove his identity as the Son of God by doing a miracle outside of God's will. And God hasn't told Jesus to stop fasting yet. It's not here in Luke's Gospel, but at the end of this passage in Matthew's Gospel, we're told that the angels are sent to to minister to Jesus, right? God relieves him from his fasting with the ministration of the angels. The rest of the temptations are all along the same lines to some degree. Look at verse 5. 
The devil offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus will worship him. And then look at verse 9. The devil again asks Jesus to prove that he's the Son of God by throwing himself off the temple. Each time, Jesus answers the devil with Scripture. But notice that the devil also uses Scripture to try to deceive him. Our Lord Jesus, the very living Word of God, answers the devil with the written Word of God. And I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it, but that's kind of astounding that the living Word himself quotes Scripture. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is the Son of God. He doesn't need any authority behind what he says, and yet he chooses the authority of Scripture to rebuke the devil. It shows us Jesus' high regard for the Scriptures and why we should be engaged in reading them daily so that we too can be proficient in our understanding. If Jesus, God's Son, of one substance with the Father, as we just said, thinks this is, so, this is important, shouldn't we? Our collect this morning is the summary of the litany. I don't know whether you picked up on it or not. It's a very powerful collect that begins Lent. It's both in your scripture insert at the top and on page 6 in your bulletin. Look what we ask. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we begin Lent, friends, as I bid you on Ash Wednesday, I bid you again, Make this a holy Lent observed by identifying your patterns of sin. Ask the Holy Spirit to help reveal them to you. They're not always self-evident. Sometimes we get so familiar with patterns of sin that we need to be shaken up a little bit. And that's partly what Lent's about. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. Ask Him to reveal you to you the temptations that you face that aren't apparent. The temptations that you face, the ways that you're harming your soul that aren't obvious. And then commit to biblical devotions of self-examination. What does that mean? That means to go through the Ten Commandments daily or to go through the Beatitudes daily or to go through some other exercise and compare yourself up to the law and see where you fall short. Not, that, not so that you can feel miserable about yourself, but that you can turn from those things where you do fall short. Because if we don't know about them, how are we to turn from them? Secondly, with prayer, ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. Ask the Holy Spirit to be in your devotion. You know, as someone that is always reading Scripture, and I am just because it's part of my job, I can tell you that you can read Scripture without being prayerful. There's a host of scholars out there that read Scripture without being prayerful. One of the things that St. Anselm says in his Faith-Seeking Understanding, his monologian, he, he talks about the fact that we have to approach the faith, we have to approach Scripture prayerfully and humbly for it to make a difference in our hearts. 
It's not just intellectual knowledge. It's something that shapes us. So friends, do examine yourself. Do read Scripture prayerfully. Fast prayerfully. Fast prayerfully. I was talking to Father Charlie this week, and he and I were talking about um, Episcopalians, which I formerly was one, and he said, you know, it seems like being an Episcopalian is just being a lazy Christian. And I said, well, I thought to myself, yeah, that, that's true. I mean, I look back on it, there's a lack of discipleship, there's a lack of devotion, there's a lack of reading, there's a lack of you know, enthusiasm and zealousness for the gospel. I stand indicted, too, as having come out of that tradition, friends. But we've come out of that tradition. And if we look at our prayer book tradition, we see that these devotions of self-examination, fasting, and prayer, they're all part of our calendar. I recently had someone leave the church here for another denomination because he said, you know what? What is said in your prayer book is not taken seriously by Anglicans. You don't follow the calendar. You don't read the lectionary. I said, well, yes, that's true. May God give us the grace to be better. Almsgiving. Why is almsgiving a part of Lent? Because it's a very tangible way of self-denial. So when you give, as Jesus says, give in secret and give with intention of heart, right? Don't just put your loose change in the alms box. That's not almsgiving. But do so prayerfully, praying for maybe the people of the Ukraine or maybe the neighbors around you here as you give to local charities, perhaps the city mission, or I could name all sorts of different ones, right? To almsgive is a spiritual exercise. And finally, to study God's Word. Now many of you are coming out of the evangelical traditions And so you're familiar with studying God's Word. But friends, let us never take that for granted. You don't know all that God has for you. No matter how often you've read the Bible or how many times you've gone through it, you don't know everything that God's trying to teach you with it. So be renewed in spirit and in soul with these things. These tools are tools that the Lord Jesus gives us Himself. We don't have to invent new ones. These are tools of devotion so that we might know Him better. And remember the words of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. As you go through and look at your sins, as you go through and repent and hear the words of forgiveness, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That is Jesus. But we have one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hold that close to your heart this Lent, friends. For Jesus is with us as we do this and has won the victory. Draw close to him in these coming weeks. Let him refine you. Listen to his voice and discern his will. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.